Ole, and anybody from the Minnesota area knows stories about Ole. Ole was turning 68, and as he was getting older, he was gaining weight and not feeling well. So he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, Well, Ole, you aren't feeling well because you have gained weight, and therefore I need to put you on a diet. So he said, It's going to be a unique diet, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat regularly for two days and then skip a day and eat regularly for two days and skip a day and just continue that pattern for four weeks and come back and see me in four weeks and at the end of four weeks you should have lost about 10 or so pounds. So Ole does that and he comes back in four weeks but to the shock of the doctor, the amazement, Ole has lost 60 pounds. So the doctor says, Ole, what, what, what did you do? Did you follow my instructions? He said, yeah, I, I, yeah, I followed everything you said I should do. And he said, but, but, but what happened to you? He said, well, I did the thing for the first two days, and it was wonderful. And then that third day, about it just killed me. He said, well, what happened? Because you, you couldn't eat on the third day? He said, no. Heck no, it was from all that uh, darn skipping. <laughs> Think about it. There is this scene in the movie Peter Pan with Robin Williams playing the part of Peter Pan where Peter Pan had, had left Never Never Land and was returning now as an adult. And when he returned, the lost boys would not believe that it was Peter Pan because he looked nothing like he did when he left and nothing that, like they would have expected him to look like when he arrived. And then we reach this very poignant moment in the movie when they're finally convinced this is Peter Pan. Take a look. Paul's writing to his friends in, Cor or in Colossae at the first century. In that culture of many gods and Caesar worship, he makes the most amazing statement about who they are now in their connection with Jesus. And here's the amazing statement he makes. In he says this, he is in charge of all things and has the final word on everything. And at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. 
The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. The same words that he used in Ephesus, he now capsulizes in Colossae at the same time. And it's simply this, that you who are followers of Jesus Christ are now the present body of Jesus in the world. And so let me just say that clearly. You who are followers of Jesus, and how many are followers of Jesus? You who are followers of Jesus are the present body of Jesus in this world at this moment. That those who are looking to find their creator, to find that eternal truth, will see it in the church. And there is no plan B. That's it. And so my concern, as I think about that, is how we have this tendency as his church to pile on so many things and fatten our lives with so many things that are not Jesus that those who want to find Jesus must come to the church and pull back all the fat, as it were, much like Oli had gained so much, and, and instead the fat is pulled back, and finally they say, oh, oh, there you are, Jesus. So in these last few months, We've been trying to peel back those things that are not really Jesus. They're not bad things, but they're not the things that Jesus said would reveal him. And so we're trying to reveal him to ourselves and to our community around us. Jesus said, really, it's simply this. You'll reveal me if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's just the simple thing that you're designed to do. So we here in these last months and in the weeks to follow have split that up into three specific actions we must take to do that, to reveal Jesus. So people go, oh, there you are, Jesus. The first is to love Jesus. And if you, didn't, you weren't here for that portion of our, our teaching, I invite you to download the podcast on our website. Because when we, when we really do love Jesus, people will go, oh, oh, there you are, Jesus. Act two was to love people, the people close to you, the people that you're in community with intimately how we forgive each other, how we deal with each other, how we cope with each other, how we help each other will bring up those who are looking for Jesus to a place they'll look at us and go, oh, there you are, Jesus. Act three, which we'll be moving into in the next couple of weeks, deals with how we relate to those outside our intimate community, the community outside of that that the way we treat those who are not part of our intimate group or even believe what we believe, how we treat them will give them the opportunity to look at who we are and say, oh, there you are, Jesus. There you are. So it is really vital that between Acts 2 and 3, as we're talking about loving people and loving community, that we stop and say, let's put some action to our intention." Because it's going to do us no good to just talk about it because you've been in plenty of of studies perhaps where you've just heard the teachings over and over again and God says, what are you going to do with those things? Jesus said, follow me, which means follow and listen to what I say and then I'll show you how to do it and as I show you how to do it, you do that and if you do that, then you truly are a follower of mine. Otherwise, you really aren't. And so Jesus says, let me tell you how you should love each other. And so here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. 
Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a, a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Jesus said, you love me by loving the people around you and especially the least of these. So we've been endeavoring to strip away everything that is not loving God or loving other people. And it's a process for us. But we're stripping it away. One clear sign that it is working for us here is last Christmas and the Christmas season where we're so full of binge buying, we said, let's not buy so much. Let's stop buying so much stuff. And so we, we said together, we're going to stop buying so much and we're going to give away more. And on Christmas Eve, we gathered here and brought the giving away spirit with us. And on that Christmas Eve here, we raised close to $38,000 to place two water wells in two villages in Tanzania so that people wouldn't die. Because right now, 6,000 children die a day in Africa because of waterborne illnesses. And we said, we don't need so much. We need to give water. And Jesus said, that's loving me. You're saving lives. And so we did that. And this morning, I want to show you what has transpired since we took that offering and what is happening right now in Tanzania. About three weeks ago, I had the privilege of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with 44 friends, including some members of Erie First. And uh, we had an incredible time. But before we went up that mountain, we went to a village called Lobosoit. It was a village that we talked about during Advent, the time when you made a sacrifice, when you were challenged by Pastor Jack and the rest of the staff to uh, do something to help people in Africa by providing clean water. We had the privilege of visiting that village. In fact, while we were there, we began drilling on a well that you helped provide. And I'm here to thank you today for what you've done. Two water wells have already been drilled and we're about to put solar pumping systems on those wells. It would not have been possible without your generosity, without that great Christmas Eve offering, which almost $38,000 was raised at that one offering. Thank you, Erie First, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for making a difference in the lives of the Maasai people in Lovasoy Village. Literally, we will save lives. People who are walking many miles now have access to clean water because of your gift. So thank you, God bless you, and keep up the good work. Erie First has always been an impact church. It's making a difference in the nations around the world. And God bless you as you continue to do great work to help people who are in need. Thank you so much. Isn't that great? So I talked to John Bongiorno two days ago, and he said, I want to tell you what else has happened now. In one of those villages, the Maasai leaders have now come to World Serve and said, we want to give you 20 acres. They said, well, what's the 20 acres for? They said, we want you to, to establish a church so we know where we can come now and worship. You see, when you love people, 
in Jesus' name, when you provide a cup of cold water, they say, oh, there you are, Jesus. See, another clear sign that I see that we are stripping off that stuff that doesn't matter, that in your service folder this morning, you found a listing of over 100 missionaries and agencies, people and organizations that we are partnered with that are doing humanitarian, compassionate work throughout the world and this nation and sharing who Jesus is in the process. And I want to thank you that because of that, there are people who are seeing Jesus through that compassion. There's so many more who need to know that compassion, and we're working on that. And so this morning, we have with us someone else that we want to partner with. Dr. Meg Chilcott is from here in Erie and is a physician, and she works here in town, but but on a regular basis, she has given her time and her, her resources to go into a place where there are so many marginalized people and traumatized people. We've asked her to come here this morning and share with you what she is seeing and how we can participate in loving the least of these in a place called Haiti. People so traumatized by earthquake, by cholera, by poverty. And she has given her life to take care of those people and care for them. And and we want to be part of that. And so would you please welcome this morning Dr. Meg Chilcott. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here today. This is truly an honor and a privilege to be here and to talk about something that is so near and dear to my heart, and that is Haiti. I remember being in this church um, as a teen, coming here for youth group on Wednesday nights. Um, The Tar family would actually bring me. And I also came um, almost every year for Christmas to the Christmas pageants as well. And I never would have dreamed that I'd be up here today talking to you about Haiti. And I'd like to share with you a little bit of my story and how God brought me um, to Haiti. I grew up in a Christian family um, in a church. Um, I grew up in a Christian school as well. And we had a great uh, exposure to missionaries there. Not only did we have missionaries come in and talk during our chapel services, um, but we also read on a lot of missionaries, including George Mueller, Nate Saint, Brother Andrew. I became very intrigued at a young age with people who had such commitment to do whatever God asked them to do, wherever he asked them to do it. And also the level of faith that I saw as they relied on God for their day-to-day being. I realized as a teen that each one of us is called to be a missionary wherever we're at, whether we stay in our hometown or whether we go overseas. But I did feel from the time that I was a teen that I was going to be going overseas at some point in my life. I didn't have that opportunity until I was in my second year of medical school. And over my Christmas break, I went with a friend of mine on an evangelism team to Brazil. In Terezinha, Brazil, I got to see how going door to door and telling people about the love of Christ um, truly transformed lives. I would have thought prior to going that it was presumptuous to go and to just expect people to open up their homes and their hearts. But the truth was that we had traveled so far, and they wanted to hear what would bring us that far. So I left there, and I thought, wow, someday I could go back in a medical capacity, and, um, and hopefully people would still remain open um, to hearing about how much God loved them, especially once their medical needs could be met. So I looked for a residency program that would allow me to do so, that would allow me to go overseas during my residency training. 
And I found a residency in Columbus, Ohio, called Doctors Hospital. And one of the program directors there, he would take the residents with him on a trip to Belize um, every two years. And it was a three-year residency program, and it just so happened that I was able to go my first year and my third year to Belize. There in the jungles of Belize, we had people walk to us with bare feet, their kids strapped to their heads with cloth, um, and they'd walk for miles just to have us take a look at their children. Sometimes they had scabies or skin infections. Um, sometimes they had broken arms. Uh, but they really just truly wanted to hear that their children were okay. And there are times that I really didn't feel we could do much for them medically. But what I learned is that being able to pray over each and every one of those patients um, was the best, best thing that I could offer to them. I got to do that with each, each patient because there were no time constraints. And I just loved that. It was, it was truly a, a gift. Um, I feel like that's where God taught me to be a doctor. Because I got to go back to Belize as well, um, it was really great to see the relationships that had formed my first trip um, continue to grow. And I could actually feel like I was a part of the mission there. During my second year of residency, I was looking for a rotation I could go overseas for a longer period of time. And um, in searching, I found Samaritan's Purse, which is a relief organization uh, founded by Franklin Graham. That's Billy Graham's son. And through Samaritan's Purse, I went on a month-long trip to Kenya, Africa. I went by myself. I was 27 years old, and um, I went for the month and ran the ICU there. And I can tell you that as a family practice resident, running an ICU is about as far from my comfort zone as you could possibly get. What I learned in Africa was not only how to deal with loneliness, um, but also the main lesson I believe God wanted to teach me while I was there was how to see death. The ICU is only five beds, and I can tell you that those beds rapidly turned over again and again throughout the day. We only had two ventilators for infants and small children, and much of my days there were spent deciding who would get the ventilator. Those were decisions that seemed impossible, and they were impossible decisions. But what I came to see is that death is just a part of life, and it can actually be a beautiful part of life. And there is no beginning and there is no end in God's eyes. This is just a shell. And so I feel like God brought a lot of healing into my life at that time um, in terms of, of learning how to see death more clearly. I had planned on going back to Africa for two years after that, but my experience there for that month, although it stretched me and taught me so much and I had an incredible experience, throughout that time I really felt God was leading me to come back to Erie after I was done with residency. I couldn't imagine why. I honestly had never pictured coming back to Erie. <laughs> uh, but I thought, okay, God, I'll obey you. I'll go back to Erie. Even though in my, in my heart I was thinking, I want to be overseas. I want to be overseas. So I came back to Erie and started attending Grace Church again, which is where I had gone um, while I was in medical school. And Grace had partnered with Haiti. They went every year back to the same place. And uh, so my first year back in March of 2009, I signed up with a team from Grace Church to go to Haiti for the first time. That trip was life-changing. Um, I was expecting another trip like I'd gone on before. I was expecting to, to be blessed and, and to bless other people. But what I didn't expect was the fantastic team that I went with. Um, it was just incredible. Uh, it was life-changing for me. I remember very vividly my first day in the clinic there. 
And the reason I remember it is because it was well baby day, and so there were babies lined up seemingly <laughs> forever, um, and they were supposed to be healthy babies here for well baby day. And by the fourth child that I had seen that morning, I was already in tears and overwhelmed. Um, I had experienced the end stage of starvation in Africa, um, but what I was already beginning to see with, with every child that I was looking at and examining was the beginning, the middle, and the end stage of starvation in Haiti. Uh, it was very overwhelming, but my team uh, surrounded me with love and strength, and um, we were able to do a lot in that, that time that we were there. By the time I left, I was already planning on going back, and <laughs> I started making arrangements as soon as I got home, and I went back in October with my mom and worked there for a week in the clinic again. And where we were at is, is in actually in Cap Haitian Haiti, which is in northern Haiti. Um, and after coming back from that trip, I thought, I really would like to go for a month. I'd like to go for a longer period of time and see, is this where God would want me to go long term? So I talked to St. Vincent, my employer, and they actually allowed me to do that. And so we set aside March of 2010, um, cleared my schedule, and that's where I was going to uh, be going in March. However, the earthquake struck on January 12th. That day, um, I will never forget, uh, I don't know that I've ever felt in my life so convinced that I was born for a time like that um, and that I needed to be in Haiti. I felt so convinced I wanted to jump on a plane right then and go, um, but I knew that if I did not go through a relief organization, I would soon become a burden to them. I would get there and soon run out of supplies and then become part of the problem. So I got on my internet, and that night I emailed every relief organization I could come up with. And when I didn't hear from them by 11 o'clock the next morning, being the patient person that I am, I started to call them. <laughs> One of them that I called was Samaritan's Purse. And what I discovered was that the email that I had sent had gone to a general email address, but that there was a certain person that they had designated who was going to be managing the care teams that were going in as the relief effort. So I sent this email to that person and then anxiously waited. And the next day, I got a call. And that call um, was that out of several hundred people who had told them that they were willing to go, I was chosen because I had already been through that application process when I went to Kenya. And so now I started to see some of the reasons why God had sent me to Africa, even more than I had realized. And also because I had been in Haiti twice before, um, they thought that I'd have a little bit more familiarity with the culture and with the language. And so by Tuesday, I was on a plane heading into Haiti, and I remember feeling completely inept and overwhelmed um, at the fact that I was heading in with these doctors who were in their 70s and had a lot of experience, had been to Vietnam and had taken care of, of victims there. They were surgeons, and I felt like, what could I offer that these people can't offer? They're going to get there, and they're going to be so disappointed in, in what I'm able to, to do. And, and yet God just kept telling me that I was going for a reason, that he, it was his, part of his plan, and I had a complete assurance of that. And I also felt very convicted that I'm not there to please people, and I'm not there to even please God. He's never asked me to please him. He's asked me to obey. And he'd asked me to go because that's where he wanted me to be. And so I just thought, okay, I can do that. I can get up each day, and I can obey God and what he wants me to do for that day. And so that's what I set out to do. And I have to tell you that that, that assurance that I had 
that this is where I was supposed to be at the, at the exact time, that became very important because while I was there, I found out that my grandmother, who is one of my best friends, uh, was sick and dying, and she actually passed away while I was there. I will never understand God's timing. I never thought that I would be apart from her during that time, but I'm still convinced to this day that I was there because that's where God wanted me to be, and I have that assurance still. When I came home from that trip, um, I was dealing with the after effects of that for a while, um, but I still had some time in March that I could go back to Haiti, and I said, I definitely want to go back. So I went to Capation again, which is in northern Haiti. It's about 90 miles from Port-au-Prince, where the earthquake had struck, um, but it's about nine and a half to eleven and a half hours by bus because the roads are, are just terrible. And so when I went to Capation, I got to experience um, working with a Catholic hospital that was about an hour and a half traveling away, which probably was like two miles, maybe ten. Um, and, and there, um, Germans had flown up a lot of the victims from the earthquake, and they were in tents. These tents were probably about 130 degrees, and these people were lying there with open wounds still from the earthquake in January and broken bones still, and they were relying on aid from the states to help them. We were their only help. I got to do some work there. I got to do some work at the clinic that I had been working at before, um, and I also got to go to some outlying villages and reach some people that um, are not able to make it into the clinic. And so um, I have a PowerPoint presentation for you, too. Um, I'd like to show you a little bit about Haiti. This picture you're probably familiar with. Um, during the earthquake, they showed this quite a bit. But I hope you can see at the very top there um, is Cap Haitian. Now, Haiti is part of an island. The larger part of the island is the Dominican Republic, and it's in the Caribbean, about 90 miles from Cuba. Cap Haitian's at the very top, and you can see Port-au-Prince at the bottom there. Next slide, please. The country of Haiti is actually founded from a slave rebellion in 1804, so they have a pretty rough history. But they're also the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The population is a little over 10 million, and nearly half of those people are under the age of 20. 80% of the people profess to be Catholic, and 16% profess to be Protestant. But what you don't hear a lot of is the amount of voodoo that is dabbled in. And when you're there, you will see witch doctors raising their flags to let, make people aware that they're, they're there to access in case people need medical help. Um, and, and many people who um, consider themselves to be very devoted to God also dabble in voodoo because it's such a huge part of their culture. One of the signs of the corruption in Haiti is that Haiti's richest 1% own nearly half of the nation's wealth. The next slide I have talks about some of the health care, or rather the lack of health care in Haiti. This is really where my heart is at. Half of the nation's children are unvaccinated, and even before the earthquake, nearly half of the causes of death were attributed to HIV AIDS, meningitis, respiratory infections, diarrhea. Ninety percent of the children of Haiti, nine out of ten, have suffered from a waterborne disease, and when we say waterborne disease, we mean things like typhoid, cholera, Diseases that cause diarrhea to the point that many of these children die. And also intestinal parasites. It's such a, a frustration when you hear of a child with a worm. Because they're not getting much nutrition to begin with, but when you realize that that small amount that they're getting is um, going to a parasite, um, it's, it's very disturbing. 
2.2% of adult Haitians are HIV positive, although I will tell you that in CAP Haitian at the clinic that I worked with, um, it's 3.7 out of 10 people that we test are positive. Now, that are, that's only the people that we test, and those are only the people within that area that can get to the clinic. In the outlying villages, um, we have no idea, but I would imagine, and the Haitian doctor I've spoken with, um, we estimate it's probably closer to 5 out of 10, and that's probably on the low side, which would make it nearly 50% in that area. The cases of tuberculosis in Haiti are more than 10 times as high as those in other Latin American countries. Imagine for me, if you will, if your doctor's office when you went there said that Monday is tuberculosis day, Tuesday is HIV day, Wednesday is diabetes, Thursdays is well baby day. That's what the clinic does there because the numbers are so enormous. It doesn't mean that they won't see someone who comes in because they're sick, but they have total days set aside to these illnesses because it's so rampant. This is Bethesda Medical Clinic. This is a clinic that I worked at there. Um, and in the middle there, you can see Pastor Mike Watson. He's one of the pastors at Grace Church, and he has a heart for Haiti. Um, and uh, this is the outside of the clinic. Inside the clinic, this is one of the rooms that you can see. It's a procedure room, and it's kind of a little bit hazy, but if you could get a better picture, um, it's, it's very dirty. Um, it's, it's very stained up. Uh, this isn't a chair that you'd probably want to get into for a procedure, but by Haitian standards, this is actually quite wonderful. This is Dr. Rodney. Uh, Dr. Rodney is a Haitian doctor um, who was actually born and raised in Cap Haitian, and he went to the Dominican Republic for medical school, and now he's back in Cap Haitian um, treating patients there at the clinic. And it, to speak to him is amazing. Um, this man could go back to the Dominican Republic and have a life that would seem to him uh, like the life of the rich and the famous. Um, but he's chosen to come back and devote himself to Cap Haitian because these are his people, and he sees a need and he knows that he's needed there. He works not only as a doctor, but also as a pastor, and he's starting up a third business as well to support himself, his wife, and his two kids. This is Prudence. Prudence is um, one of the most amazing nurses I've ever met. She is involved in everything, and she um, helps with everything. She comes into the United States and gets training in HIV and also tuberculosis and comes back with the most knowledgeable information possible to treat these people. They are her heart. She also has a husband who's a pastor, and they have a community that they serve up in the mountains. They take soup to them twice a week, and some, for some of the people in that village, it's the only food that they get. They have to drive as far as they can, and then they get out, and they carry the soup the rest of the way. This is one of my best friends in Haiti. This is Kat Lee. She is the nurse who primarily works with the children, which is my um, particular passion. She is amazing. Um, this woman uh, has to see ch child after child who is starving, um, child after child who comes in hungry, soaked in, in wet cloths, um, and send them away most times without anything. Um, and it's very hard for her. The first words that she has for me every time I come is Mag, because they call me Mag. She says, Mag, she said, did you bring the bottles? Did you bring the formula? Um, because we'll bring those in our suitcases. Cat Lee is also HIV positive. And I want you to understand that when we hear HIV, a lot of us start to immediately, and myself included, think, how did that happen? Did they do something? Did they sin? Kat Lee didn't do anything to deserve that diagnosis. She, she didn't sin to deserve that. Um, but she suffers from it, and she has for years. And yet she raises her 10-year-old daughter, and she comes to this clinic, despite the fact that she's nauseous from the medications and that she gets dizzy and has to lay down sometimes. She is there, and she is serving these people because they mean that much to her. 
This is well baby day at the clinic. Um, and you can see that the babies seem to go on forever and ever. Um, this picture uh, looks great. These children look pretty healthy, and they look pretty well. And I know that if I were you, I'd be sitting there thinking, what's the great need? These children have clothes. But if you could see them up closely, and I'm going to show you some more pictures, you would see that a lot of these boys are dressed in girls' clothing, and some of the girls have boys' clothing. They're dressed in whatever anyone can find, and they're dressed in their finest to come to the clinic and to see the American doctor. They don't have diapers on, many of them. Some of them do, but that's considered a luxury, and not many of them have that, that kind of money. They come and they sit there all day. They're soaked through by the time I see them most times, um, and they probably haven't had any food either. They have to get there very early in the morning. They have to be there by 7 o'clock in the morning, and they have to sit through an hour chapel service before they come out, and they get to sit in this area and wait perhaps until 4 o'clock in the afternoon before someone's finally able to see them because they come um, first come, first serve. The fact is that 20% of children under 5 years of age are underweight in Haiti. This little girl, her name is Adrina, is a a little girl I took care of in Port-au-Prince. She was an orphan, and she's nearly five years old and weighs approximately 17 pounds. She had other medical problems as well, but I can tell you that she's not alone in being malnourished. This is Kat Lee and a friend of mine that are weighing in the babies for Well Baby Day. And the next slide shows a picture of that, that scale up close. As you can see, they make do with what they have there. This is the first baby that, um, that I saw when I was there in Capation on my first trip. I remember her distinctly because I was so appalled that when I laid her down on the table, she was floppy. She seemed to have almost no muscle tone. I also recognized very quickly that although she was four months old, she couldn't raise her head. She would turn her head and she would smile at us, but she didn't have the strength to raise her head. That's a picture of me holding her, and you can see that her thigh is about the same size as my thumb, and she's four months old. There's another picture of her uh, mom standing next to her, and you can see that she can't raise her head up. She's just resting against Alyssa. Um, But what's very startling and disconcerting to me is that the mom brought her here for Well Baby Day, not realizing there's anything wrong with her baby. And the nurse, Kat Lee, who loves children and has uh, spent her lifetime treating children, does not recognize the fact that this is not normal neurological development for a baby. And also did not recognize, the next slide will show her chart, that she was 3.86 kilos last month, and she's coming in this month at 7 pounds 9 ounces at 4 months of age. She's lost nearly a pound. And they see nothing wrong with that. She, in fact, got out the chart to show me that she's on the curve and she's looking good. And I tried telling her, Catley, no, no, this is not healthy. This is not good. But this is what they see. This is the norm in Haiti. This is a picture of some of the members of our team. And the story behind this picture is that in the arms of Alyssa there, there's a little boy, and his name is Emmanuel. And his mom came in with him. She came in while I was seeing another patient, and she walked right past that patient. Actually, she walked to the patient and placed Emmanuel in her arms. I thought that they knew each other, that they were friends. It turned out she didn't know the woman at all. She just was so overwhelmed and felt so sick, she couldn't take it anymore. She couldn't take sitting out in that area waiting. So she'd come in, put her her son into this person's arm that she didn't even know, and she sat on the table, shaking like a leaf. 
When I did some studies on her, I found out that she not only had malaria, which is a febrile illness that also causes extreme aches in, mus in the muscles throughout the body, but she also had a rare waterborne disease called Giardia, which causes severe diarrhea and dehydration. I put her on some IV fluids in another room, and we started her on some medications. Unfortunately, when you treat for these, these problems, if a mother's breastfeeding, she can't continue to breastfeed because that's not healthy for the baby. So we had to come up with another way to feed Emmanuel uh, throughout the day that he was there with us at the clinic, but also then when he went home. I didn't know um, how we were going to do that, but Kat Lee found, uh, I believe it was the last can of formula that we had at the clinic there. She got that can of formula, and this is how we fed him. I had brought these syringes from the clinic, uh, from my clinic here, the office, um, that had just been sitting around and we didn't know what we were going to do with them. And so when we were trying to think of a way to make a rig something up to feed Emmanuel, I thought, well, we could make it in the syringe. So I sat feeding Emmanuel while I was seeing patients, and we took turns on our team taking care of Emmanuel, and I just thought how fitting it is that God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. He was there throughout that day with us seeing patients. And they don't all have great endings. Um, One-third of the newborn babies are born underweight. This picture, I want you to take and put it in your mind and never lose sight of this picture. Uh, this was a little baby boy. I'll tell you, um, the first thing I saw on the chart was that he weighed in at three pounds, two ounces. When he came in, um, I started to undress the baby right away. He was, had a shrill cry, but it was very weak too. And I laid him down and I was calling him a she because he was dressed in pink from head to toe. Pink bonnet, pink socks, pink everything, because that was the nicest outfit the mother could, could find. She was very proud of her baby. She didn't know that there was anything wrong with him. He was 15 days old, and according to her, he had weighed over 7 pounds at birth. And now at 15 days, he weighed 3 pounds, 2 ounces, with wet clothing on. So he was probably under 3 pounds. This is a, a better image of, of what I saw, the agony the agony that this child had experienced since the day that he was born, 15 days of suffering. The mom was only 17, and she was trying to breastfeed, but she was having a lot of difficulty. Um, and so the baby was becoming progressively more weak. I sent one of the members of the team up um, to the missionaries that were there. There was a missionary who had just had a baby that was two months old. And I asked her, can you, can you get us a bottle? Can you get us a bottle? And so she sent down a bottle, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I found out later on, it was one of two bottles that she had. But she sent that bottle down. It was still wet um, on the inside from her having washed it out. And later she told me she would have known the situation. She would have put some breast milk in there herself. We got the mom to express some milk into that, into that bottle and started to give this to him. We wrapped him in a little hand cloth that we had there, a hand towel, um, to get him out of the wet clothing that he was in. And this is, this is this little boy wrapped in this hand towel, getting uh, breast milk through the bottle. And for the first time, I think in his life, he felt fed. Now, this was a, one of the most difficult encounters that I had while I was there. There were several members of the team that were just around me, waiting to see what was going to happen here, um, because they could tell that there was something really wrong with this child. And I remember telling the mom that this child had been a gift from God, but that he'd never left God's arms. And he was still in God's arms, and he was going to go back to God soon. And I had to tell her that with tears streaming down my face. The men on my team, tears streaming down their faces. The mom, 17 years old, tears streaming as we prayed, and we prayed over this baby. One of the guys on the team offered to take this baby into the hospital while I continued to see patients. He took the child into the hospital, 
And when they got there, the baby needed antibiotics, but they didn't have them at the hospital because they don't carry the medicines at the hospital. You have to go to a pharmacy and get the medication and bring it back to the hospital. And so he went and he did that, um, and we heard the day before we left that that child had died. But this is a better story. This is a little baby that I saw this past March in Capation, and I have to tell you, I think this is one of the best feelings that you can have on this earth. This baby hadn't had a bottle in several days. Um, What the moms will do is they'll feed them soup or anything that they can find to fill their stomachs. But to give a full bottle to a baby and watch them greedily suck it down while you're holding them, I I think there can't be anything that can compare with that. And I am so blessed to be able to do that over and over again when I go to Haiti. This is a a baby, an infant in Port-au-Prince that I saw. Um, If you can see on the abdomen there, the, the amount of skin that's tenting up, we had pinched that skin. That's a sign that this baby is severely dehydrated. And that's what happens when you, have, you don't have enough to eat. You get dehydrated as well, and it's very uncomfortable. The fact is that 56% of Haitians live on less than a dollar a day. These are some of the kids that I saw when I went to that outlying village I told you about. We took a tap-tap, which is a truck that you tap to get on and you tap to get off of it. And it, can, it can put a 15 people in the back of that, that, that pickup truck. Um, we took it as far as it would go, and then we got off and we walked. And we had to walk through an area that had some water. And we got finally to this school that they had made. And they were so proud of it. And they wanted me to take their picture. They were so excited. And the next picture shows the school from the outside. Um, And then the next picture shows on the inside. And I don't think you'll be able to see it very well. But the entire school, is it's it's dirt on the ground. But the entire school with the um, the beams and and the desks there are all made from machete. Um, they use machetes in Haiti. Uh, uh, I don't even know if we have anything to compare it to. They cut umbilical cords with it. They cut their meat with it. They, they, don't, they don't own much, but everyone owns a machete, and they can do amazing things with it. <laughs> when you go to Haiti, you can find machetes that have paintings on them, and you can bring those back um, because that's a, a true sign you've been to Haiti if you have the machete. This is me going back, um, walking across. This, this is the road. This is the road after we had to get out of the truck, um, and Dr. Rodney and I making our way um, across, and uh, he thought I was pretty funny taking my shoes off and going barefoot across the water. Um, but what I realized, and this is from above, is you can see the people there washing their clothes. I realized that all day long when I had been seeing those people that had worms and had diarrhea, that this was their water supply. This in the rural areas, they will drink when they are thirsty. They'll drink what water they can find, and they'll drink the same water that that they do their clothing in, that they wash in, um, and they get very, very sick. One of the problems that you have when you have lack of clean water is infections, and not just gastrointestinal infections, but infections of the skin as well. These were twins that were about seven days old when I saw them, and the next picture shows this, this little one I was looking at there, and you probably can't see it in this picture very well, but the umbilical stump there is infected. It's got yellow pus coming from it. And the, the next picture shows the forehead a little bit more closely. There's little pustules all across the forehead, and that's what we see over and over again is these infections on the skin on these babies. And the reason why is because they don't have soap. And if they do have soap, the kind of soap that they have is lye soap. 
And lye soap, if you've, if you've never used it, it strips the skin. It's really, really strong. And they use it to wash their clothes, but they'll use it to wash their kids too, if that's what soap that they have. Um, so what you have, and the next picture shows another child, um, you see this over and over and over again is these kinds of infections. I see it on the scalp. I'll see 20 nodules that will have to open up and drain. I'll see them on the legs. I'll see them um, on the umbilical stump everywhere. That's the, the water in the countryside that you saw the picture of that I walked across. This is the water in the city. Um, this, this is a sewer right here that you're seeing a picture of. But what, what you don't know is that that sewer runs all throughout the city, and the wells are actually a few feet from these sewers. So you can imagine that those water supplies get, in, get infected, get contaminated quite frequently. This is a, a picture of what happens when you drink bad water. This is a young man named Marcellus Robinson, who is 14 years old. I saw him in Port-au-Prince. I took care of him for about a week. He had typhoid fever, which is salmonella in the bloodstream. Makes you very, very sick. He actually was so sick that he got a hole in his intestinal tract. We call that a perforation. He underwent surgeries for it. He put up a good fight for over a week. The same night that my grandma died was the night Marcellus died. When I came back the next morning, his bed was empty, and I knew what had happened. Only 50% of Haiti population has access to safe drinking water. I love this picture because this is a picture I took at a church, and um, these little girls are dressed up in their finest with their hair done for church. They're all excited. Um, but like I said before, the really frustrating part is that looking at these kids, 32% of these kids at our school age are going to be infected right now with intestinal parasites. So again, the small amount of nutrition that they can get is lost to these worms. And in fact, what I've heard happens over and over again in Haiti is that mothers will make, make cookies out of dirt, and they feed those to their children to fill their bellies up. If you can see, if you go back to that picture one more time, um, the little girl in the middle, can we go back that, to that next slide? The little girl in the middle, this is why I love this picture so much, She's dressed in her finest. That yellow dress on the girl in the middle there on the bench, um, that's actually a dress-up dress for Belle from Beauty and the Beast. She got that dress from, from someone donating it, I'm sure, but she doesn't know. She's, she's dressed in her finest to come to church, and that's what she's wearing. And she is beautiful. This next slide is a slide that I took um, of a picture in Port-au-Prince. Um, and this should mean something to us. In Haiti, they speak Creole, which is a combination of French, Spanish, and Portuguese. They don't speak English, but they know where their help is going to come from. As I told you, the government is very corrupt. They know of the problems with HIV, and they know of the problems with the poverty level, but they don't pay for education, not even elementary school. They have to, parents have to pay themselves for their kids to go, and they can't afford it. And they don't pay for them to get educated about HIV, and they, they do cover some of the medications and, and the visits when they do become HIV positive. But they want these people to remain weak, and they want them to remain uneducated so that they don't um, put up more of a struggle, that they'll just go with the flow, that they can keep them controlled. And so this sign, that's to us. That's to us here today. We're English-speaking people. We have food and water and medicine. We have what they don't have. If they were here in the room with us today, and we had a lot, and they didn't have enough, would we not give something to them? We're all aware now, with what we've seen on CNN, with what we're seeing in these pictures today, we're aware of what's going on in Haiti. 
This next picture is the last picture I have, and I included this because I want you to see this, this, this image here. This was in Cap Haitian this past March after the earthquake. Now, Cap Haitian, again, is in northern Haiti. But this is a 16-year-old. I thought it was the mom of the little girl, but it's not. The 16-year-old is an orphan from Port-au-Prince. Both of her parents died in an earthquake. And the little girl in her lap is a two-year-old who's also an orphan from Port-au-Prince. This 16-year-old, I don't even know if she knew her before the earthquake, but she's now the primary caregiver for this little girl. And she was bringing her into me because she was sick. The dress that she's wearing looks really nice, but if you could see up close, you would see the holes. You would see the fact that the hat is about the size, uh, about three sizes too small for her. But she's dressed in her best to come. I wanted to read a passage, and actually, um, Matthew chapter 25 is where I wanted to read from. And uh, I think I'm just going to go ahead and read the passage again, even though we already heard it. Um, I I don't think that it it would hurt us to hear it one more time. This is a passage that in the last year, year and a half, has come to mean so much more to me and opened my eyes and challenged me every time I read it. And I want us all to be challenged here today. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is, this is judgment day. This is the end. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now this is the important part. Why? Why are they inheriting the kingdom of God? Why are they being ushered into heaven? Well, it doesn't say it was because they, they accepted an altar call or because they came every Sunday to church and they, they gave 10%. Those things are necessary and important. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But what God says in this passage is the reason that they're being entered into heaven is because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This is a part that's disconcerting. Then he will also say to those on his left, and these words are powerful, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's startling imagery. And why? Why would the maker of, of heaven and earth, the creator of these people, why would he say, depart from me? Why would he call them accursed? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If a 16-year-old can take on the responsibility of another human being, the responsibility of a two-year-old. I think we can challenge ourselves today, and I'm no different from you. I'm just the same. 
we can challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, what can we do? We need to look at our lives and we need to examine. It might mean that you want to sell your home and get a smaller place and use that money to support others, that you don't need the space that you have. Maybe it's something small, like not flushing the toilet every time that you use it and wasting that resource and saving that money to help others. But we've got to get radical about this world. We've got to get radical about the challenges that God's put in front of us because Jesus was radical and because that's what he asks of us. I've been incredibly blessed to have been to Haiti. I've been incredibly blessed by this country, and I know that you will be, will be as well. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you. You can be seated. I just want to take a few more moments, and we'll have you out of here shortly, but Jesus expects us to do something. And we have the ability to do something. Even if you are here today and you live under the poverty level here in Erie, please understand that what you have to a lot of the world would seem like riches. So we're going to do a couple of things. First of all, I want to let you know that in your service folder you will find a card like this where we support the over 100 agencies and missionaries around the world on a monthly basis and they need that support. And, and so I ask you, I'm not asking you for a certain amount of money, I'm just asking you to participate. Some of you can give up a latte a week, I think. Some of you can give up a meal. Some of you can give up a vacation. I, I don't know what, whatever Jesus tells you because it's his stuff that he gave to you the, to hold for him. And, and so what I need for you to do uh, to bring this back next week, and if you're not going to be here next week, even this week, to do this in, in a few minutes to put it in the offering, to just put down your, address, your name and your address and say, with God's help, I'm going to do X amount of money per month to support those people who are giving compassion around the world. Above all, don't just say, okay, I'll deal with this later, because you know that you'll ignore it. Because we get so overloaded with all the issues of the world, but you can do something now. And so would you do this, join Pam and me, as we, this week we'll talk about it and say, what are we going to do? What will we give up so that we can give formula or whatever the case may be to, to help keep somebody alive and let them know that Jesus loves them? So come prepared with this next week. In just a moment, we're going to take an offering and and I invite you to give in that offering this morning as we want to, to be a blessing and to love Dr. Meg and, and even the guests we're going to have with us next week as we talk about what's happening in the inner city here and, and in Washington, D.C. Because next week on this platform, you're going to have those who are, who are our partners in this city uh, from Big Brothers and Big Sisters, from the Site Center of Erie, from the Office of Children and Youth, the Little White House Project, the Upper Room, and the Ophelia Project. They're going to be here. We're going to talk to them. You're going to hear them. You've got to be here to support them. And what you give this morning will go to support them and, and Dr. Meg this morning. So would you take an envelope and just write on it to the least of these? If you brought your regular tithes and offerings, don't change those. Those are supposed to go someplace already. You can do something else and be generous with that and join with us and just write on it to the least of these and that will go to, to bless these that are joining us today and, and next week. In just a moment, we're going to take an offering, and then I ask you to just sit tight because Pastor Don's going to come and tell you what we're going to do with these water bottles this morning, and then we'll have you out of here. 
So, ushers, would you please come? Again, this will be our offering this morning for tithes and offerings and especially for what you're, you're doing right now to bless those who are with us this week and next. So, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give to you that you've blessed us so much. We have so much. Continue to teach us how to be generous to the least of these. Bless this offering and multiply it. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.